All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to continue to worship God together. I hope you get a Bible with you. Open it up to the book of Psalms. Psalm 100 is where we're going to be studying from God's word here this morning. It's a joy to have you with us, guests who are with us this morning. Thanks so much for being here. What a privilege it is uh, to have you with us as we sing the word of God and study the word of God together. So we're still walking through this series called Brand New, exploring various aspects of what it means to be in Christ and what kinds of things fire in the lives of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. We just thought it would be a fitting morning, lining up with the fact that our children are singing and there's records to go home and seeds to sow and good news all over this gathering that it would be appropriate for us to look at the theme of joy and how God puts joy into the hearts of his people. So Psalm 100 is a perfect place for us to overhear the joy of the people of God. So Psalm 100, if you would follow along, I'm gonna read it to us. The psalmist writes, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. So I want to ask you this question as we start out this morning. What comes to mind when you think church? So free association, what kinds of words come to mind? If I say the word church, what do you start thinking? I got in a conversation with a guy recently at our house. We were in our garage. He was helping fix something on our house, and the conversation went toward spiritual things, and he started talking about the church, and I could tell his experience of the church was a very, very negative, very bad Experience. And so the terms that he kept peppering through his description of church were very negative terms. And I get it. Uh, the church doesn't always live up to the aspirations that we're called to in God's word. When you see the church, you don't always see the thing that Jesus intended to unleash upon the world with all of its beauty and compassion and power. It's not always that, right? It doesn't always match the brochure, right? I, I get it. Part of the reason for walking through a series called Brand New is the need to clarify what real Christianity looks like. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago, what does real Christianity look like? It looks like people abiding in Christ, which, which means it looks like people persevering, remaining in Jesus, not just coasting through life, but remaining steadfastly anchored in Jesus Christ and his gospel. We talked last week about how real Christians are impacted and transformed by the word of God. So we saw in Psalm 19, all the things that start going on in our lives as, as God through his word is changing us. But what about you? So if I ask you the question that I asked my friend in our garage, what comes to mind when you think church? I think the beauty of Psalm 100 is this is what comes to mind when God thinks church. This is a song God gives to his people about being his people. It's a song for the church to sing, but it's also a song for the church to sing about what it looks like to be his people. So I think there's a lot of instruction that's helpful 
for us to take away from this text. The first thing we notice is this, if you're taking notes, the sound. So the sound of God's gathered people comes through in this psalm. There's a call to worship right there in verse one, and the call to worship goes out to the entire world. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. But after invoking the praise of the entire earth, the psalm quickly comes to church. Verse three, he made us, we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture, his people, his sheep, his flock. That's covenant language. That's God among his covenant people. In other words, Psalm 100 is the sound of the people of God coming into the presence of God. And what do you hear? You you hear something. It's this. The joy of God's people is audible. The joy of God's people is audible. they're, They're not singing in the library. They're not singing with their inside voices. You can hear them from around the block. It's an audible thing. You just, they're volume indicators right there in verse one. Here's a few translations from history. King James Version, make a joyful noise to the Lord. New American Standard translates that same verse, shout joyfully to the Lord. Wycliffe's translation from the 1300s, sing ye heartily to God. New International Version, shout for joy to the Lord. In the Christian Standard Bible, shout triumphantly to God. Right there in verse one, it's like God has his hand on the volume knob and he's cranking it up. It's a people shouting with joy, shouting in triumph to God, and notice the main thing so we don't come away with the wrong idea. It's not like, hey, the more ear-splitting worship is, the more true it is to Psalm 100, no. No, notice what God is cranking up. He's cranking up the voices of his people. In other words, God's favorite instrument every Sunday that we gather is the instrument of the congregation's voice. He loves to hear his people singing joyful songs, shouting triumphantly in his presence. So this psalm doesn't just let us hear the sound, it lets us pick up on the the spirit of the worship of God's people. So you see in verse four, they're entering his gates with thanksgiving, entering his courts with praise. In verse two, they're singing two words, they're singing with gladness and they're singing joyful songs. So you've got right there in one verse, gladness and joy. I love this statement from Old Testament commentator who writes about the Psalms, Marvin Tate. He writes these words. The enthusiasm of Israelite worship is illustrated throughout Psalms 93 through 100. Shouts are raised, praises chanted and sung while musical instruments are played and horns blown. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. And friend, this is not um, some kind of pep rally that's just saying, hey, get louder. Get. It's, it's not some empty emotionalism. Everything that the psalmist calls the people to do is always grounded in theology. It's always grounded in something God has done. You see that in Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of praise for the Lord is a great God and a great king over all the earth. It's grounding the excitement in theology. Same thing is true in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. So holding nothing back, everything in me, blessing the Lord. And it says, how are you gonna get motive and incentive to bless the Lord in this way? It says, bless the Lord and don't forget what he's done. 
Don't forget all his benefits. And then in case you don't know, it starts filling in the blank. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who redeems your life from the pit. So this is not in the Psalms and in Psalm 100. It is not people chasing an emotion. It is not people chasing an experience. It's people remembering who God is and responding to who God is. It's remembering what God has done and responding to what God has done. So the joy of God's people is audible. Next point is this, the reason for our joy is gospel. And that's even truer now in light of what we see in the fullness of time. The Messiah has come from where we are. In the psalmist, this was before Jesus arrives on the scene. But now, in light of the cross and the resurrection, it's only more so. So even think about texts in the New Testament that talk about the spirit of gathered worship among the people of God. In Colossians chapter three, verse 16. In Ephesians five, chapter, verse 19, you see this, this thankful spirit. In gathered worship, the people are singing with gratitude in their hearts. They're making melody from thankful hearts. In, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we're told to come before the throne of what? Grace and to come before the throne of grace with boldness, to come with confidence, because access has been fully afforded to us. Hebrews 12 announces that worship in light of the cross feels different than worship at the base of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And it draws this very dramatic contrast. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For you have not come to what could be touched, now he's gonna describe Mount Sinai, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And here was what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned. It's a holy mountain, don't let anything touch this mountain or it dies. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So there's Sinai. Instead, you have come to another mountain, namely Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering. So just note that word. That's an interesting word. We don't use that. I don't use the word festive a lot. So just for fun, I just looked up, what are the synonyms of festive? I, I've had a guess as to what those synonyms are. Here's the synonyms for festive. Joyful, jolly, merry, happy, celebratory. That's what he's saying. You haven't gone to that mountain. You've come to this one. It's a festive gathering. It's a happy, celebratory gathering. In light of the cross, we come with boldness, with confidence, with joy. You know how... You can go to a restaurant, right, in, in our day and in our time, and if you don't like the restaurant, you can leave an online review as a warning sign for those who are coming behind you. you don't get this, or the service is bad, don't even come at all, right? You can leave an online review about your experience of that restaurant. You can leave an online review about your experience of a church, even. And it's like here in, in Hebrews 12, the verse I was just reading, it's like God's word lets you read if you will, a, a Google online review of worship at Mount Sinai. And the reviewer writes, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, 
words so heavy the people begged for them to stop. Some of you are like, I've been to that church. I haven't been to Sinai, but I've, that sounds like a church I've, I've been to. Friends, bear in mind, even when the text for a given morning, our text for this morning is a text about joy. It's right on the surface of it. You just read it and there's joy and gladness all over it. But even if the text of a given morning isn't about joy, even if the text in hand is about gravity and is about sin and is about darkness in our lives, followers of Jesus Christ should never leave any worship gathering hearing, yes, God's mercies are many, but your sins, they are more. It should never be the end note. The end note of every ga- gathering is good news. Because for whatever sin we might be talking about from the text of God's word, we can't leave here as if God has done nothing about it. As if God has not acted in Christ to bring us near despite our sin, to take care of, to forgive, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If the end note of the sermon isn't good news, then the gathering is reenacting worship at the wrong mountain. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, when the writer of the Hebrews insists, no, that's the wrong mountain. Instead, you've come to this one, Zion, festive gathering, happy mountain, joy-filled mountain. There's a a playful account, Twitter account. Uh, It's a parody account, so it's not like serious, and, and the name of the account is Church Curmudgeon. And this is clearly a person who knows a lot about experience in the church. And even the avatar, the kind of picture that's associated with this account, Church Curmudge, is just the angry face of somebody uh, who has a lot of things, a lot of complaints to make about the church. Again, it's playful and funny, but there's some truth in it. So it's a, a parody account. So Church Curmudgeon does uh, parody church announcements, for example. And here's one of his parody church announcements. If you've lost your sense of smell due to COVID, you are encouraged to volunteer for our junior high ministry. (laughs) Some of you are following it right now. You're like, I'm gonna follow. (laughs) He complains about the style of music. Here's another post. If God can part the waters, why does the worship leader always need a bridge? And his last post, frequently the most classic church curmudgeon post is at the end of many days and it just says this, Good night, sinners. (laughs) Oftentimes, the first post of the morning will say, you look tired, sinners. (laughs) Look, there's a reason why my opening greeting to you every Sunday isn't good morning, sinners. And it's because that's already been trademarked by Moses. I would be sued for copyright infringement. That Old Testament worship, Moses basically comes down and his Bible is made out of rocks and he sets it down on the pulpit and it smashes the pulpit, right? There, it's, it's a heavy word of darkness and gloom and Hebrews 12 says, that's not your gathering. Get a festive gathering. It's good morning, church. God has been good to us. Good morning. His steadfast love endures forever. Good morning. Christ has died for us and Christ has risen and Christ is coming again. You know, it's interesting. Even, even Paul's letter to Corinth which arguably should have been a letter that would have started with good morning sinners. You can understand that. Even there, Paul says, good morning, church. He greets them as the saints who are in Corinth because we have a reason for gladness. Yes, it's true. We have sinned against a holy God. 
God, and we remember that we acknowledge that. We, we acknowledge and live in the gravity of that. That's true. We've sinned against a holy God. Guess what else is true? For all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There's good news. There's good news every single Sunday. God's rescuing mercy creates a sound in the church. Verse two, gladness and joyful songs. Is that our sound? If that could be their sound in the Old Testament when they were waiting for the Messiah, how much more can it be our sound now that he's come and now that we belong to him? So the sound, second, the creed. The creed. We, we learned something about Old Testament theology. What was, it, what was the message the, the people were supposed to be marinating in? CSB translates verse three, acknowledge that the Lord is God. I love that word acknowledge. Acknowledgement, it carries the sense of owning it, of not just kind of mental assent, but bringing this truth on board, bringing it into your life that God is God and I'm not. God is God and my fears are not. God is God and Satan is not. God is God and he is sovereign. He is in control. He is in charge. Acknowledge it. Bring it on board. I love those older translations, though. Translations that would say, um, know that the Lord, he is God. So three truths that the people were steeped in. Number one, he is God. God. You, you see how much this text is, it is utterly God enthralled. Gathered worship should be utterly God centered, unashamedly, unapologetically centered on God. You just look down at your text and you see all these words God, Lord, His, Him, He, over and over. Just look at verse one to God. Verse two, serve the Lord. Verse two, come before Him. Verse three, Know the Lord, he made us. Verse three repeats the possessive pronoun three times. We're his, we're his, we're his. Verse four, they're his gates, they're his courts. To him, his name. Verse five, Lord is good, his faithful love, his faithfulness. You see, God, Lord, him, he, his. It's, it's God-centered gathering. It's about him. Church, the reason that we want our songs and our sermons to be God-centered isn't because God-centeredness is trending right now. It's because God is the center of the universe. Who's better? Who's more glorious than he is? Who satisfies our hearts more than he does? Who stabilizes our lives more than the great God who we worship? So often, not only in the Psalms, but throughout Scripture, our security comes from the knowledge that God is God. God is our refuge, Psalm 46, and our strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, because of who God is, therefore we will not fear. You see how it's leveraging the sovereignty of God for the stability of his people. Throughout the book of Isaiah, that idea Again, in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. It's not a hypothesis, not guessing about the future. It's going to happen because God is in control. Scripture constantly leverages God's sovereignty for our stability. He is God. Second, he made us. 
I don't think that the psalmist here is simply restating the fact that all humans owe their existence to the creator, God. Because often in the Old Testament, the language of I made you is covenant language. Isaiah chapter 43 verse one, for example. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. So it's God made us, we belong to him. We don't know the melody of the song that was sung in Israel out of Psalm 100, but I think whatever that melody is, Isaiah's humming it a few hundred years later when he writes Isaiah 43 verse one because he says, he's hearkening that same idea. God made us, we're his. He made us, we're his. That's the next point, we are his. You think about that language and how it runs from cover to cover in God's word. Remember the apostle Paul when he's speaking to the church at Corinth and he says to Corinth, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price. You think about the predominant message of our culture here in the West, the sowing seeds, ideological seeds are being sown that the idea is that the only person you belong to is you. The only person you ever need to answer to is you, you write the script, nobody else does. You write the rules, nobody else does. You define yourself, nobody else does. That's your job. You have autonomy, you have freedom, and it's promising autonomy, promising radical individualism, promising total unvarnished freedom. Alan Noble, in his excellent book, You Are Not Your Own, he writes these words, to be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. And he goes on to, to show how studies are revealing that this generation steeped in this message of radical individualism is more depressed than ever before, more isolated and more lonely than any generation has been before. Because the message of you belong to yourself has a bite in the end. You know, in the, in the movie that many of us have seen, the movie to Toy Story, the greatest thing in the world is to belong to someone. It's to belong to a child. Woody, the cowboy, he lifts up his boot and what's he got underneath it? Andy. He's got it. That's his favorite thing about his life is Andy's name is on my boots. I belong to him. Andy comes into the room and he's looking for me. He wrote his name on my boots. Somebody loves me. I belong to someone. It's the opposite of the radical individualism message of our culture. It's the beauty of belonging to someone. You know, for hundreds of years, in contrast to this message of autonomy and freedom and individualism, for hundreds of years, Christians have memorized the words to the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. You know where the Heidelberg Catechism begins? It asks this question. Believer, what is your only comfort in life and death? What's the source of your comfort? And here's what the answer that they gave, informed by scripture. My only comfort in life and death is this, that I am not my own. 
but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Church has been steeped in that message for centuries. And what, was, what were they saying back there in 1562? They were saying, somebody loves me. I belong to someone. God wrote his name on my boots. I belong to him forever. He loves me. Not only do you have his name etched on your life, he has your name etched on his. You think about how many hymns, for example, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Another hymn writer would would pick up on the same idea. My name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. You can never rub it out. Your name is on his hands. It's like these hymn writers were allowing you to entertain a kind of sanctified imagination for you to imagine yourself walking up to Jesus Christ, turning his hand over and seeing your name graven there forever. Somebody loves you. Somebody put his name on your boots. Somebody etched your name on his hands. Why would anybody not want to belong to a God who loves like this? The psalm rings with a joy that we ache for outside of Christ, the joy of belonging to someone who will love us forever. The sound, the creed, and the seeds of people made new. The seeds of people made new. What we see in this text, by the time we're done with it, is we see a people praising God, we see a people growing and steeped in the knowledge of God, we see a people inviting the nations and generations to join in the song of God, AKA what we see is worship, nurture, mission. We've talked about this as a church. No surprise in that sense, right? This psalm takes in the whole world. Right there in verse one, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Commentator Derek Kidner said, verse one, quote, claims the whole world for God. In a real sense, evangelism and missions is a global call to worship. God, the one who created everyone all the way to the ends of the earth, alone has the prerogative and right to command the worship of every person on planet earth. And there's an invocation in verse one. Everyone come and start shouting. Everybody come and sing your joyful songs over the rescue that you have known by the grace of God. And so we see this principle we've talked about a lot as a church. Worship is the fuel of mission and the goal of mission. Mission doesn't exist for itself. Mission exists because worship doesn't. In the New Testament, you see people who take this message of good news that we call the gospel, right? And they cast it like seeds on the ground. They cast it like seeds on the ground and they pray for a harvest of brand new. Everywhere that they throw the seed, they pray for a harvest of crops that will bring 
great glory to God and great joy to the nations. In the gospel, God, what is he doing? He's calling forth the worship of the nations. He's calling for the worship of all peoples. And that is, friend, that's where history's going. The terminal moment of history will find people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne singing the praises of the Lamb in awe of the glory of God. Everyone here who has trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, repented of your sins, you will, this is your future, you will stand in the new heavens and the new earth. You will look around and you will see a sea of people, vast multitudes from everywhere around the earth, brothers and sisters in the faith, doing what? Psalm 100, shouting triumphantly to the Lord, serving the Lord with gladness, coming before him with joyful songs, acknowledging that he is Lord, entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The Great Commission is not wishful thinking. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the water covers the sea. I'm gonna keep saying this until you, until you hear it until I hear it coming back in my direction, that, that missions is a joy project. Romans chapter 10 is a compelling picture of missions because it's the feet of those who bring good news. It's happy feet bringing happy news to the nations. The Great Commission is joy in tennis shoes. That's why you see in Acts chapter eight, the word is spreading abroad, it's scattering, and everywhere it goes, it says there's great joy in that city. Why? Because good news went there. When good news got there, there was great joy that came with it. It's joy on the run. We make the gospel known in every nation and through all generations. This psalm begins with every nation being invited to shout triumphantly to God and it ends with all generations celebrating his faithfulness. And this is why, incidentally, this is why we do kids ministry the way we do. I didn't look at the lesson plans for this morning in all the different halls, but I know what's happening in every hall where our kids are meeting here this morning. Staff members, teams of volunteers, some of you served in the last gathering, staff members, teams of volunteers are doing what? They're inviting the next generation to do this. Know the Lord. He made you. We're his. Join us in praising God, telling them who God is, telling them who they are. This is a perfect morning for us to look at Psalm 100 because it started with us seeing our children singing these gospel truths to us and singing it with great joy, right? I love the images of church in scripture. So we are the body of Christ. We're his hands and his feet walking through the world. Peter would say that we are we're stones in a temple that God is building. And then another image of the church is that we're gardeners, sowing seeds in the field of home and neighborhood and world. And, and what are we doing while we sow? We're singing while we're sowing. And we're singing while we're sowing because we know what the future sounds like. Joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy. That's where history's heading. And that future kingdom of God reaches back and shapes us now. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher who lived in the mid-1800s, 
He said about this Psalm, Psalm 100, he wrote these words, nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble Psalm by a vast congregation. It is all ablaze with grateful adoration. When a cynical culture hears the word church, all kinds of words come to mind. Lame, boring, rules, religion, irrelevant. God has a different set of word associations when you say, talk about your people. Talk about the church. And you know what words come to his mind in Psalm 100? Joyful, gladness, songs, thanksgiving, nations shouting triumphantly, children and their children's children knowing the Lord and his faithfulness. It's all kind of things churches can be about, but what if, Brooke Hills, what if we were about this? What if this was our aspiration? We aimed in this direction. What if this kind of brand new came to Brook Hills?